This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. two of my interviews with Nisha Manik, an internationally recognized medical doctor in the field of integrative medicine who worked for many years at the famous Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. She's also a protege of the physicist William Tiller. Her new book is Bridging Science and Spirit, The Genius of Dr. William Tiller and the Promise of Information Medicine. Good morning, Nisha. Good morning, Tonio. I was thinking we could talk about the magnetic monopole and information medicine, and perhaps we could also talk about the Buddha relics as conscious objects. Yes, that's an important anchor into spirit. And, you know, we're really on the part of the bridge, which is pillar number five, where Dr. Tiller He's doing this target experiment, testing whether this intention, the thoughts that we hold, have any power to change materials in a reliable and measurable way. Now, when you and I hold a thought, I know from my own experience that I hold it for a few seconds and something else is crowding it out. And what Tiller did was very interesting. And this is really a response to my question to him. Why use a device in the first place? And here's the thing. When you and I hold a thought, we can't keep an intention for a few seconds or minutes. And what Tiller was doing was holding a thought for 30 minutes or more. But even that, we cannot, in a protocol, in a scientific protocol, really note whether even a thought for 30 minutes can change a target. And his target was a material. So water was his target. So he took that knowledge of physics and the field science in Stanford Research Laboratories that human thought can affect a machine without any touch, without any physical contact. And so he thought to himself, what if we hold a single thought and align as a team with just one thought, would that be imprinted? He used the word imprinted into a device. And they wouldn't touch the device. It's sitting on a table and their team of three to four people who are almost like yogis. They're very, very inner developed. So they're able to hold a single thought, and it was like a protocol. So you're bypassing the brain. You're making a thought 
which he crafted. That's the thought. That's the intention statement. It's information. You write it out. And he revised it. And he said in his information was water would change by a certain pH. And he used language like a chemist would. The hydrogen ion would change by a factor of X and Y. Very standard protocols in that sense. But he used it as the intention statement they would hold in their minds and the devices sitting there. So this is very unusual. You're not using the brain to see if the brain is lit up in certain ways. He wasn't interested in the brain. He was interested in the creative process, first of all. The second thing he was very interested in was whether this intention statement, when they're holding it for that half an hour, is somehow captured in the device. When they say somehow, what they were really doing is that information, when you hold an intention, you have a subtle energy component. You really are creating a subtle energy information system, okay? So the device, it's been long known that humans can affect machines in a very reproducible way. This is many, many labs have done this, including the Princeton Anomalous Research Labs or Pair Labs. This was Robert Yan and Brenda Dunn's work. And then you had Russell Targ and Harold Putoff at Stanford. And I think they had interactions with Dr. Tiller. So Tiller was aware that human intention or human thought does have non-local effects, okay? They can have effects removed in space and time. So he takes that knowledge and says, can a device be imprinted? Can it be affected somehow by humans which are aligned with a single purpose? There was coherence with him and his post-grad students in his lab, and he chose them very carefully. The device itself was a simple device. It has a circuit. It's like, you know, if you open up your TV remote thing, you know, it has circuitry. It has a board, and it has a circuit, transmitters, and its power output is really very little. But what I'm trying to say is the device was a secondary thing. What Tiller wanted to say was you cannot keep intending minute and hour after hour to change a glass of water's pH in front of you. And so he decided that if this device can hold like a repository of subtle energy, that is your intention is subtle energy, in a stable way, that would be a game changer. They were really moving into a dimension of science that was never done before. They created a protocol and they linked it together like an engineer. That is, when you hold an intention, you are creating something inside of you. That interior motive is subtle energy. When you meditate or you chant a mantra or you do Tai Chi or yoga, you feel something inside. That intention is subtle energy. It's not electromagnetism because if I had to put a detector you know, near you, doesn't register anything. Maybe we have new generation detectors, but I can tell you when Stiller was doing these experiments, there was no such thing. Yet we can feel these subtle energies move inside of us. When I do Qigong, I know I could play with energy. I can play with an invisible ball between my hands. 
So Tiller says, what are these subtle energies? They're informational, okay? And they're levels of information. Now, we're getting off track a little bit. I want to go back to the device and back to his target experiment. What's interesting is that when he did this experiment in the mid-1990s, he took that device and they sent it to Minnesota. The receiving lab had no idea what the original intent was. Was it to raise the pH of water up a unit or down a unit? The lab was unaware. They were blinded to the original intention. What they did was take the device and put it about six inches from a vessel of water and switch it on. But it took several weeks. And I think in the original papers, it took almost two months for the pH to start doing its thing. And it did always in line with the original intent. And as they repeated the experiments over and over, you want to make sure that this wasn't anomalous or one-off. And they've repeated this hundreds, if not thousands of times. They were faster and faster. That's when the space thing came into play. When you do thermodynamics, Tonio, you have to know not only the target experimental thermodynamics, you need to know the prevalent conditions of the actual space, the prevailing thermodynamics, which are temperature, pressure, volume. Those metrics are very important in your calculations. And that's where Tiller stumbled into something quite amazing. He showed, and this is over four to five years of uninterrupted data collection, that there were temperature fluctuations and they were not from the air. They were something different. And he traced it to fluctuations, he thinks, in the physical vacuum. Because when you put fans in the lab space itself, if there were air currents, they should disappear entirely, immediately, but they weren't. And they were not circadian rhythms of daytime and nighttime dips in temperature. It was very unique. Something in nature was happening that had never been described before. But here's the magic, and I call it magic because Tiller has knowledge of symmetries in nature, and he knew that if you were to look at this temperature fluctuations in a different way, by Fourier mathematics, you can look at the data for harmonics. You look at the patterns in a different way. And that's where he found that the whole room was, to use the word harmonic, singing. Okay, it was pumping. And that was very significant. It had never been described before. So they were huge signals. They were not little things in the background noise. And third, you could do mathematical analysis with Fourier mathematics, well accepted in science, and decompose those signals and you find a pattern. And the pattern was in the lab and even just about 10 feet outside the door of the lab. So what's special about this, you know, pumping up the space, this harmonic? He and Walter Dibble at that time realized that this was perhaps the link, the bridge, the intention's very huge effect. These weren't tiny effects because when you, Tonya, and I hold intentions in our mind, the effects are there, but they're so small we don't see them. With our technology, we cannot measure them. And I think Tiller and Walter Dibble found something, the conditions where intention effects are magnified many, many, many times over. 
And so we come into this really important part of the bridge, and that is what is that characteristic of the space that's special? And that's where Paul Dirac's work comes in. What's relevant about Dirac's work is this. The Dirac equation predicts something quite interesting. The first thing it predicted was antimatter. He was trying to understand the electron's behavior, and his equation predicted an anti-electron, which was then discovered about four years late in the 1930s by Carl Anderson in California Institute of Technology as the positron. But there was something else that the Dirac equation predicted, and it's magnetic monopoles. Now, the significance of this is this. We know nature has symmetries, and we know that electromagnetism are united. Electricity is the movement of electrons, so we know that electricity has a particle. We call it the electron. So where's the counterpart? Where's the symmetry of magnetism? We know there's a field, a magnetic field, but we have never found a magnet counterpart particle. We haven't found the monopole. That's the particle that a lot of labs have been looking for. And Dirac even says there must be some utility, some usefulness. There must be some condition somewhere in nature that we can find stable magnetic monopoles. So this is what Tiller did. And this is a crucial link in the bridge. That space, that he found unusual temperature fluctuations. He did something. Tillard actually did this in his labs in Payson. But to make it relevant for the readers, I, in my writing, put an experiment. So, Tonya, you and I are going to do an experiment in our garage in Arizona, and down the road is Dr. Tiller, and doing the exact same thing in his garage. We are going to change the pH of water in our respective spaces. We're going to set up exactly the same vessel of water, exactly the same pH meter. We are doing exactly the background testing of our garage, and he does it the same data gathering in his, okay? Then the next piece of the experiment is this. We both take an ordinary refrigerator magnet, the same kind we put things on a refrigerator, we take one of those magnets, we know the North Pole and the South Pole, and we have decided with Dr. Tiller that I'm going to use the North Pole next to the bottle of water, and he's doing the same North Pole, and he puts it, and we record data for about two weeks, and every minute a pH is reading is being recorded by our computerized system. Routine, very standard measurements. And Tiller's doing the same. And in my garage, nothing is happening. The pH settles down into around 5.8 and doesn't move. Because 5.8, why? It's slightly acidic because the carbon dioxide dissolves in the water and it's expected thermodynamics predicts that it will be around 5.8. It doesn't move. And two weeks, thousands of data points later, nothing has changed. And I say, I knew this. And then I flip the magnet to the South Pole. I keep collecting data. And I predict nothing will change with the South Pole either. And sure enough, my experiment exactly is predicted. Nothing changes. 
Now, I called Tiller excitedly, and I said, okay, Dr. Tiller, I'm ready with my data set. And he says, so am I. And we compare data sets. He comes over with his graphs, and I show him mine. And mine, North Pole, South Pole, exactly the same. pH of water is uniform. Nothing has shifted. It's exactly as thermodynamics predicted. There's no magnetic effect. There's no North Pole and South Pole differences of the water pH. Tiller's graph is very unusual because his data set is very distinctive compared to mine. When he has the North Pole facing the water vessel, the water is acidic, much more acidic than would be predicted. And the South Pole in his garage is much more alkaline than would be predicted. This is very strange behavior. Now, here's the thing. I recall the very first time I visited Tiller's lab in Payson. And when I visited his labs for our Thursday meetings, I noticed something. I noticed being relaxed, refreshed, even though I was surrounded by meters, gauges, computer terminals, data being collected. And I commented to Dr. Tiller that this space feels very unique. And he smiled. He said it is very unique because as you investigate it, this space is behaving very strangely. It is hallowed space. And I wrote that word hallowed. It was like I could be standing in the middle of a cathedral, rested and silent. And yet there was a very busy physics environment. This is important because he had created a sacred space. And why can't a space be sacred in a physics lab or your office or my bedroom or the kitchen or the hospital ICU or the hospital overall? We're reaching into a very essential part of nature. And sacred spaces, even the word sacred, we have sort of relegated to temples and churches and places of worship. And that's where we have created consciously, where humans gather and pray and meditate, we have created something very, very special. Tiller has done this with his intention. He did this with his intention to create a different type of water. And he's done that with human enzymes and fruit fly, and I won't go into all of that. But this leaps us into something in Pillar 6, which is information medicine. And my asking Tiller, why use a device? Why bother with this? He has opened up a whole new industry. Just think about it. If you and I can imprint a device reliably, and you can hold that information, our intention to benefit something in a stable way for a few weeks or a few months, then there's every possibility that we can, like a laser, broadcast and beam our information 24-7, even when we are asleep, to a target thousands of miles away. And that's what Tiller is saying, that this device is metastable, that it's activated, it's above ground state, if we use thermodynamic language, that that device now is holding precious information, your intention, and it can be used in a useful way to send your information all of the time. Because you and I, when we do prayers, 
then we break up, we go and have lunch, and we go and do other things, right? Mm-hmm. But the device now is stable. It is doing the work for us. And I think it's very magnificent possibility. What Tiller is saying, your human system, your acupuncture system is now being aligned. You have to be very, very conscious to be able to imprint. You have to be awake and loving to be able to imprint. Tiller and I, and I reported the case report where my patient, whom I looked after at the Mayo Clinic, was doing very poorly. And he reached out to me and said, I'm ready to do anything to get better. This is not working for me to do just chemistry and use another medicine. It hasn't worked for me for years. And he was wasting away. So we did information medicine. But I think what Tiller was trying to say is it's not just chemistry that's wrong. It's not just the acupuncture system, which may be imbalanced, which it was but he would get better for a short time. It's informational. We have to set the informational infrastructure, and we will help him. But how long will that take? How long will that take? We did not know. But Mark was on board. We got a consent form, and Tiller and I would meditate. I joined him in that endeavor. And let's just explore that for a moment, what that looks like, because it's really quite magnificent. You know, Tiller didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for recognition. He has never met my patient. But Tiller was on board. He says, I want to help this fellow human being. Imagine that. Tiller is a physicist. He's not a doctor. But he knows human suffering. He knows human suffering intimately. And he wants to help. And he says, let's meditate. And we took several weeks to refine our intention statement. What did that mean? That meant Nisha and Mark getting on the phone. Many sessions, many hours of work went into a very singular intention statement. It was actually around pain. Mark wanted his pain to go away. He wanted his cardiac health recover and that his old life come back. But he wasn't a normal human being after the fact. Actually, he grew. He grew inside. He grew in his emotional well-being. It was an inside-out healing. It was so apparent to Miller and me. But in that intention statement crafting, it was up to me as his doctor and for the patient. So there was a collaboration, a real collaboration. And then Dr. Tiller got involved, and then we set about imprinting. In the imprinting itself, we would say, let's clear the space first. We would settle in our chairs, clear the space that we invoke the high spiritual space to be activated as we imprint. Okay, so Tittle would say, we respectfully request the indwelling consciousness of space. Very magnificent beginning. Okay, and then we would hold the intention to help Mark. And then we would seal it with, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And then we go into silence for about half an hour. And then we come out of that meditation, thy will be done again. And then that device would be sent to Mark, to his home in Minneapolis. And then he would plug it in his home. Every three months we would re-imprint. And along the way, I would be in touch with Mark with the usual metrics in outcomes. 
very much like a physician would. You know, how's your pain level? Was the BASDI score? And I put what the BASDI means because he had a very unusual kind of arthritis. So we did everything like a normal clinic would do, but from a distance. And in 2018, I called Mark. I would follow up with him by phone. What's your pain level? What's happening to your physical function? And he says, I don't know what happened, but in the last week, my pain disappeared. I said, what do you mean disappear? Because I was amazed. And Tiller and I knew that information medicine is nonlinear. You see, linear means you take a tablet of Tylenol and you say your headache will go in half an hour, right? We, we do these things in dose response. But information medicine, we don't know how it works. And Tiller and I said, it will happen. And when it happens, it'll be like magic. I use the word magic, and forgive me for using that, because we sort of knew it'll be nonlinear. It'll be a jump. It'll be a jump in his consciousness, in his energy levels, just snapping into attention, and energy meaning his acupuncture system, and he's a different man, okay? And that can take time. In children, I think it might probably take much, much less time. We know children are much more open and pliable. They don't have belief systems and patterns. So information medicine is likely. And we saw this with autism program. Within the 24 hours of switching on the device to help autistic kids, the first report came from Australia, and it's in the book. Information medicine is really magnificent because think of the cost. These programs were done And the device for autistic children was housed in a shed, of all things, in Payson, Arizona, and it's broadcast thousands of miles because subtle energies are not electromagnetic. They're not passed down a telephone wire. It's a field effect, and I call it the granny effect in my book. So prayers are very, very important The Tiller device is like a prayer-holding device, if I can call it, and it's doing that like a coherent beam, like a laser switched on, and it's beaming to each person that has signed that form, that consent form, to receive that loving information, and then we see the outcome. So there are some questions, in fact, many questions that I still have around this program, but it does work, and I think it's poised, and Whoever is listening to this, I hope that they can go back to their doctors and scientists to say, can we look at this? Because we do need momentum. It can't be one or two voices. It can be many, many people gathering together and making intention, writing teams, imprinting teams. And I wrote that in my afterward, that there are whole new industries just waiting and that I hope that Tiller work. Those who really know mathematics, who know thermodynamics, can take it the next few steps and build on his work, build on the bridge that is laid out for them. So information medicine, in my view, can reduce side effects. It has no side effects. It has no cost. There is no brick and mortar. It was sitting in a shed in Payson. You know, I mean, there's so much potential here. I'm going to stop there and wait for your questions, Tonio. Okay, so... This imprinting, it sounds like it's a focusing of our consciousness. Yes, yes. And some people call that prayer. Some people might call it meditation. But really, it's just a focusing of our mind on a particular thought or, or state 
of of mind. You know, I think it's an alignment. Yes, I like yeah. that too. Yeah. Yeah. You and know, it can be aligned in many different ways mm-hmm. and to different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So how is that related to the magnetic monopole? So when you create a space, and his team pump it up very quickly, and his space is now conditioned all the time. I mean, it doesn't fade. It used to fade in the 19th. They noticed that, you know, if they took away the device over three or four months, those fluctuations can die out. But now they don't. They're just very conditioned. So when I went to Pace and I could feel that this is not a usual space in a lab. And I worked in labs. I know what they feel like. It, you know, it, it's very draining. You're, you're doing intellectual work. But in Tiller's space, the magnet has differing effects. The magnet acts like a monopole. It's not a dipole anymore. The North Pole has a different effect. It is more acidic to water compared to the South Pole, which is more alkaline. Now, here's the thing that has interest to us in medicine. And some naturopaths and chiropractors, I believe, do this. And that is, if you bring a magnet close to your muscles, and if you point the North Pole to the muscle, it'll actually go weak, okay? So one of the first imbalances I think happens in disease is that the pH value shifts. So if you have a virus infection or you have a bacterial infection or you will have a toxic exposure of some sort, the pH will shift. But we don't measure pH in medicine necessarily because it's very tightly regulated, but regionally it may shift. But if you do a blood test, which is very coarse, you know, when we do a chemical analysis, we just have descriptions of reference ranges. I think we miss a lot. But if you and some very sensitive healers, they can tell that you have an imbalance here in the spleen or this area or this. I think they're actually detecting regional pH differences. And I report in the opening essay of pillar number six that they are MDs that are using magnets to pump up the acupuncture system. You can augment. So what I'm getting out of this is that what you're referring to as the pH fluctuation, that when it becomes more acidic, the muscle gets, muscle response can be weaker or the body. Yes gets weaker or and the immune system would get weaker and make it more vulnerable to viruses. Well, it might be making a big leap. All I'm saying is what Tiller observed with the magnet monopole has relevance to the energetic system. In other words, the body already has symmetries also. Mm-hmm. It's not just that we have symmetry in our face, the left and the right, you know, we have symmetries but that the acupuncture system is of a higher symmetry than the atom molecule level. You can make those correlates. You can make those correlates based on what Tiller is observing, that in his lab, there's the atom molecule and there's a higher state. He calls it the U1 gauge or normal reality, and the higher reality, the conditioned space, is where the magnetic effects become stable you are accessing North Pole and South Pole effects separately. And we have never seen that usually in nature. But in nature, we do see those North Pole and South Pole effects in the body itself. 
Right. And what you're saying is that through the power of intention, the focusing of our mind with intention can actually affect those pH levels one way or another. Yes. And that, in effect, can create healing. I don't know if I can make that leap. All I can say is when you hold an intention to do Tai Chi or yoga, you are powering up your acupuncture system, okay? And you can make an intention for beneficial effect. Can I make the leap that we're shifting pH values? We have never done those studies. Well, you've done it with water. But it's an outer water vessel. It's not inside. That's true. That's true. But the thing and is so that... we the have practi- to be careful because people can run with this and say, a Mayo doctor says you can make intention and create pH changes in your body. I think you can't, but I cannot say right. things like that. Well, here's where I could jump in with my own personal experience because about 40-some-odd years ago, I was studying Chinese energy healing, and we were doing just what you were talking about. We were using the focus of our mind to read the subtle energy in the body so we could feel along certain meridians the energy of specific organs. We could feel we became trained, we trained ourselves to sense different qualities of those organs. And then we could either pump in energy or we could draw out excess energy. That's that's just putting in very basic terms. But generally, the imbalances are there's a weakness or there's an overactivity. So we would use our direct intention to balance those to the best of our ability and sensitivity. And I suspect that if we had to go put a micro pH meter around those things, you're correcting the pH. Yes, that's yeah, what I suspect I, I, too, based on what you're what you're saying in these experiments. Yeah, because hydrogen ions and all electrolytes in water dissolved in water, their potential changes significantly. What is amazing to me is that using a magnet, you can actually heal an infection, and that was Brian Frank's work, and it was published, and it was typhoid in Kenya. You know, I'm from Kenya. I know how these infectious diseases, they don't have access to healthcare in rural Africa. And this gentleman from Oklahoma was doing research in Kenya on infectious disease, and he uses magnets not only, first of all, to find the imbalances in these people, and they had the Vidal test positive for typhus, and then he uses magnets to heal them. No antibiotics. And the Vidal test becomes negative. So something about this North Pole and South Pole, something changes in the body's acupuncture system, and it has consequences on physical health somehow if you're able to clear pathogens effectively. And it's working And that's very intriguing. And we, we have never done this research. There's no randomized controlled trials here. And that's working on an energetic level, a subtle oh, energetic level. It's absolutely working on an energetic level. And mind you, these are serious infections. Mm-hmm. You know, we wouldn't be able to do this in America because there's IRB boards. You know, that's, that's unethical. But in Kenya, you know, what, you, these are villagers coming to a, a field clinic. And this doctor, Frank, is saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do because we don't have anything else, right? And he's an enlightened mind, in my view, that took the leap and said, let's put magnets 
and I'm giving a very broad brush of what he did do. The, the papers are out there. You can go to Brian Frank, Typhoid Kenya, and actually get it on PubMed on the NIH National Library System. And I'd be meaning to actually write to him and say, let's look at this in more detail. Can you give me more information on how you use Basically, he's testing the muscle strength. Because when you put a magnet and the muscle goes weak, he knows there's an imbalance there. And then he corrected it with a different magnet position. So he was very thoughtful. He used the magnets properly. He diagnosed them properly. And then he used the normal ways of infection analysis, which is a test. Look at the antibodies. Look at the reactivity. Can these typhoid bacteria, are they still testing positive or negative? And he cleared them in most of the people. I think he had 13 subjects, 10 out of the 13 cleared with just magnets. That's mind-blowing in my book. So maybe we could talk about the Buddha's relics and their significance in relation to this as conscious objects that have become repositories of very, very powerful, subtle energy. Right. You know, it comes back to where is consciousness? You know, this is the where question in science. Where is consciousness? And I held that question, you know, in my medical mind, the consciousness in in my anatomy classes and whatever I learned in medical school is consciousness resides in the brain. And that was completely turned upside down one day on a Sunday when I went to see the Buddha's relics. And I didn't even know what the word relic actually meant. Relics are objects that are left behind, and it can be from many spiritual traditions, but if we just focus on the Buddha, the Buddhist lineage, then when the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, was cremated all those years ago, like 2,600 years now, amongst his ashes were found these crystal-like objects. They're like little pearls. And the first council, the Buddhist council, collected them and treasured them because they were very activated, activated because they felt the presence of Buddha, When you are around Buddha, you would feel love. And I know I've been around teachers where they're so magnificent. Tiller is, by the way, one of them. I felt that with him, that you feel a kind of relaxation and silence around them. Their presence just radiates that. You can't describe it any other way. So these objects that His Holiness the Dalai Lama brought with him to India, you know, he left Tibet in 1959 and came to Dharamshala, He had this collection of Shakyamuni Buddha's relics, and they were in monasteries for hundreds of years. And Buddha left them because it's a very efficient way, I believe, for Buddhist masters to reach self-realization, finding your inner teacher and clearing away the obstacles, your own patterns quickly and efficiently. And if you're around relics, that happens. So here I am, I'm a doctor in Mayo Clinic, and a friend from Canada calls me up and says, hey, Nisha, the relics of the Buddha are being exhibited in Minneapolis. And at at first I thought, this is ridiculous, don't be silly. And I don't know what a relic is anyway, why would I care? And she says, no, you know, you're really an inquirer, you read a lot, and I think this is really worth your while. So I took her seriously, and I looked up on the internet, Buddha Relic Tour, and I, and I thought, whoa, there is something like that. It's free. So I took time on a Sunday to go up to the monastery, Guto, Guto Golden Wheel Monastery in northern Minneapolis, 
And wouldn't you know it, my brother was coming back from London. He says, hey, Nisha, I have a stopover in the Twin Cities on my way to L.A. I can have a few hours. And I told Raj, why don't we go to this together? This kind of sounds like fun, you know. So I'm going with a tourist mind. I really went with a tourist mind, not like, oh, I'm a Buddhist. I had no idea what a relic was. So he was very interested, too. So off we went together to view the Buddha's relic. And I can tell you, the moment we stepped into the monastery, something happened. The very space was so magnificent. It's like, you know, I don't know, you're, you're stepping into grandmother's hug or something. And I hadn't even seen the relic yet. Okay, I felt, oh, this is really awesome space here. And then I went to the first glass case. This is where the Buddha's relics were little containers. They called them stupas. And you could view the relics, you know, little bead-like things. But the moment I laid my eyes on the relics, it's like something came out of the glass case and hugged me. I almost fell to my knees. It was very conscious. I'm not making a mistake in this. And my mind stopped. I mean, I was, I was shocked beyond anything because these things were like talking to me okay it's like hello Nisha and when I was young I'd read about Buddha's life about Ananda his cousin and those relics were there Ananda Nagarjuna they were all labeled you know little little neat labels and little bead-like objects and it was shocking to me because this whole thing about brain and body and there's nothing in front of me. There's no body in front of me. It was bead-like things that were highly, highly conscious. And that shocked me to my core, okay? Because I had to, thought, I had to throw out everything I knew about consciousness immediately. I had to go to ground, ground up, clear the slate and say, well, then consciousness is not in my head. These things are conscious, and consciousness is everywhere. I can feel it. What's going on? And so I actually staggered out of that monastery, and really my brother did too. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it changed me. I was transformed in, in a very, very real way, and I wrote a paper around it. And I remember when we finally could muster a few words, my brother and I said, we made an intention, and we didn't know we were doing that. I remember saying, Raj, we're going to bring the masters to our home. And he sort of nodded dumbly, okay, whatever that means. And we wrote a note to the Maitreya project at that time had its offices in London. And we said, we'd like to invite the masters to our home in Los Angeles. Now, the relics go to universities and temples and monasteries that never been to a private home. We didn't hold out much hope, but our intention was so strong in Minneapolis. And it's like we made an intention, and it's like we surrendered it. You know, we released it, and we went on our way. My brother went back to L.A. I went back to Mayo Clinic. And so we were granted permission, and the relics came to our home. And I could see again, as the relics entered our home, the space changed. An ordinary living room where we read the Wall Street Journal and morning coffee was feeling like the interior of Westminster Abbey, if I can make a visual for you. And you know something? It was so curious. The toaster blew out. The light bulbs, some of them blew out. This just went pop. <laughs> and the custodian of the relic 
folks, you know, they said, don't worry, this happens everywhere we go. You know, it's like your face is being purified. Isn't that interesting? The space was being purified quickly. And so that was when I realized, you know, I had, before the relics came to our home, I knew that many of my family members couldn't come to Los Angeles on short notice. And I took 11 tiller devices and I put them under the table where the Buddha relics were being exhibited. I didn't interfere with the relics. I did not touch them. There's no need to do that. The objects are so activated. They create a field of such magnificent, such love. I mean, it's incredible. The healings and the things that were going on in our space was unbelievable. And, you know, we got letters from the fire department of Los Angeles and the police department, the fire department, because we had to let them know that there might be a lot of people gathering in our home. We didn't know how many because it's a free event and it was not a single incident happened. We had more than 3,000 or 3,500 people over the course of two and a half days. Unbelievable. And I was observing. You know, you observe every face, every pet, every child that comes in and goes out. A different face. You know, they come in. And they go out, and they come in many times. Many stayed for hours, and many cried, and, you know, it was just unbelievable. And so this is one of the devices that I gave to Dr. Tiller, and I said, let's test the hypothesis that this device that has been imprinted, I didn't write, need to write a statement because words are meaningless when you are at such a high level. The Buddha is in silence. You don't need words. And Tiller is a master, but he's not an avatar, right? There are levels of consciousness. So we took one of these devices from the Buddha's relics, and I gave it to Dr. Tiller, and I said, let's test the hypothesis that this will condition a space, and we can see the level by the pH of water. And he agreed. And at first, nothing happened. You know, I've described it in pillar number seven of my book, and nothing happened. And that's when I realized that Tiller's setup is at a certain consciousness level. We don't have the instrument, even with Tiller's setup. And the Buddha relics are much, much higher consciousness. We have to link to the Master somehow. And that's where Tiller, in his humility, wrote this wonderful statement, we respectfully request the indwelling loving kindness in this device be made manifest to our setup in a measurable way. And the moment he did that, it's like the Master's responded and linked up in this space, in this time, they're beyond space and beyond time. They link up with us, and the pH meter took off. It was so magnificent. Tiller called me excited. Nisha, the guys at the lab are saying something's going on, and I said, what's going on? And the data came in, and we watched. It was amazing. I still get goosebumps when I think about it, that we were answered by the divine and said, here we are, here's your measurement. <laughs> And the thermodynamic calculations would say that that room should be burning up. That pressure and volume would be bursting. But nothing of that was happening when you look at the room. It wasn't burning up 700 degrees Celsius. 
So what was going on? And Tiller says, of course, it's love. It's coherence. When your intention coheres, it, it increases order, it releases energy, and that energy will have an impact on that water. Your intention is a source of free energy. That information of loving kindness is energy. And information and energy are entwined. They're intimately related. And that's a very good way to really end this. You know, that loving kindness is information. And information is connected to energy. And energy will never run out. Intention is your natural resource. How about that? It's beautiful. (laughs) It is. And to think that these objects from the Buddha are still here with us. I mean, they're so active. Tonio, it's incredible. And I'm here in Santa Cruz, and I can tell you there are, you know, Lama Zopas, they come here. You know, the, the relic tour used to come here. So I can feel it. You know, when I go to certain spaces, I go, okay, yep, the land of medicine Buddha is here. Okay, not far from me, maybe two, three miles drive up in Soquel. It's magnificent. So the listeners who are here, and if they have an opportunity to come out to California, my goodness, the gift of the relics of Buddha are here. Free. Come here, sit, meditate, become changed. Become a light unto yourself. Become homo spiritus. Become homo illumini. Those are the things I write in my book at the end, that we are searching for our own self, and it's always within ourselves. We are searching for that answer. We look at the pandemic and we are looking for answers out there. We should do the science, but ultimately it's leading us back to ourselves. That information medicine can be done in pandemic, and there is a proposal right now to imprint a device, a tiller device to help with the pandemic. It's by private enterprise. I hope that they come through. But ultimately, you know, everyone does their own thing. In the chaos and disruption inside, we're completely still, and we can reach there and do our prayers. So for me, this has been a very magnificent journey to be with Tiller and to learn and to make the bridge, to construct the bridge in my way and to connect the dots and the bricks of ideas, as I call it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are your questions, Tonya? Tell me some questions. We have a few minutes. Um. Okay, so my question would be, how can my listeners, our listeners, access this? What would you suggest as the first steps that they can take to start to apply this in their own lives? Yes, what a magnificent question. Bridging science does bring many, many things, which is very unusual. The first thing I would tell your listeners is this. Learn about the levels of consciousness. And when you come across any piece of information, whether it's the newspaper, whether it's a scientific report, whether it's a medication, whether it's in vitamin, ask yourself, is this leading me to the truth of who I really am or what I really am? Sometimes it will and many times it won't. So start to learn the levels of consciousness. Then the mystery that you're surrounded with is lifted. You begin to have discernment. And I think we must have discernment. We must not be passive consumers of information. So that would be my first request. Learn 
the levels of consciousness. It made me very discerning of the information I consume. I can tell you right now, okay? Number two, learn this technique of muscle testing. It's available to everyone. You don't have to be any scientist. It's available to you because you are accessing your acupuncture system. If you're not sure, start practicing some Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga. All of them are magnificent techniques to really pump up your acupuncture system so you become familiar to the feeling inside when you're doing an effective practice. When you say acupuncture system, you're really talking about our ability to harness subtle energy. Absolutely. It's already there. It's already there. But to direct it in an intentional way. Yes. So when you hold your hand in front of your chest and you intend this practice, I am going to do Tai Chi for my health and my bones and my joints and my brain power and my relaxation and my stress reduction, do it. Say that intention out and harness your acupuncture system. Do it for your health. It's good. That's where you start. So you're harnessing your subtle energies. Absolutely correct. And your subtle energies are endless because it's universal. It's infinite. Loving is infinite. Love is only one quality. So you're really actually shining the love of your heart and your subtle energies back to yourself. And these are tools. Tai Chi, yoga, Qigong are tools. They're very powerful. Okay? And if you're not sure, then start with your breath. Just start with breathing. Five minutes, close your eyes, and do the four, seven, eight breathing. I think I've taught this in, in one of our... Yes. Um, yes. And you can even bring that piece again and say, four, seven, eight breathing. Close your eyes. Do the four, seven, eight breathing. Just five minutes. If five minutes is too long, one minute. Be there. Be willing to go there. Willingness will take you a long, long way. Okay? So the first thing is, Learn the levels of consciousness. Learn muscle testing. Learn to pump your acupuncture system. Learn breathing. And fifth, have faith. Have faith. Have faith in yourself and the powers that are within you. Because by the faith, you can move mountains. By faith, you can create magnificent things in your life. By faith, one step at a time, you can be different today, different tomorrow, different next week, and you will create a stronger you. No virus can come near you. You know, you are, you are magnificent beyond anything. And lo and behold, if the virus is at your doorstep, you meet it because you are in your truth, your light. That is not to say you ignore things out there. You use that information in a bigger and stronger way. You build yourself up. And it's not even a goal. It's about setting up a system. So I set up a system about knowing which level of consciousness any piece of information is. And I will call people out that this system doesn't make sense. What you've just said doesn't make sense. Because I read newspapers and I write that this didn't quite make sense. Where's the source? This creates fear creates misinformation. So your listeners can understand the levels of consciousness, test for it, pump their acupuncture system, and be poised. Okay? So that would be my hope and prayer. And I would say all of them, go and buy Bridging Science and Spirit. It's all there. There's so many resources at the end of the book 
a whole glossary of terminology that I created so that people can understand that. Because so much knowledge that is in there that will be unfamiliar, and I understand that. But the bridge is complete, and it was my duty to build a bridge and release it and give it into the hands of Dr. Tiller, who loved it. He had not a single correction. He said, it's all here. The big, broad ideas are all here, and he loved it. And I love it, too. It's really (laughs) wonderful because when we have this kind of scientifically-based understanding of the way this works, it can actually help those of us living in the material world to have faith in our own ability to tap into this and to utilize it in these ways. Yeah. You know, the biggest lesson of all of this, Tony, if I can share it, and your listeners must understand, the moment, the moment they start their intention practice, the moment they close their eyes or they take that breath, they're being assisted by the great unseen. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. You're not alone. You're never alone. So my archangel is Raphael whether it's Master Jesus, Mother Mary, Lord Shiva, Krishna, Lord Buddha, the great ones, they're there with you and they're cheering us on because we must own our greatness. We have to learn. You have to walk your walk for yourself. And by your walk, you grow. And you grow into your own magnificence. So every challenge, turn it around and make it your rope so you're anchored and you grow. And the unseen is helping you. And Dr. Tiller, one time I said to him, you keep talking about the great unseen. What is this great unseen? And he leaned forward and he told me three names. I could only recognize Archangel Michael. The other two, I had no idea. And now I'm actually writing an extension of Bridging Science and Spirit. What is the great unseen? Okay, so it's going to be a much smaller book, thankfully. To go into that aspect that Tiller says, make no mistake about it, you're always being assisted by the great unseen. Help your humankind, help yourself, and they will always assist you. So it will be my contribution also to go into that, the great unseen, and unpack it, unravel it, and go into a very unusual direction. Well, I look forward to that book very, very much. Yes. It's very exciting. tantalizing carrot there. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I'm so grateful for all of your time. Oh, Tonya, I'm grateful for you and be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Nisha Monik, an internationally recognized medical doctor in the field of integrative medicine. She's also a protege of the physicist William Tiller. Her new book that we've been talking about is Bridging Science and Spirit. The Genius of Dr. William Tiller and the Promise of Information Medicine. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take really good care of yourselves and each other. Dark is coming round.
everybody wants control Don't hesitate to kill one another So come back as Jesus Come back and save the world Bless all the future Of every boy and girl Come back as Rama Forgive us for what we've done Come back as Allah Come back as anyone Krishna Baro Krishna ni begane Baro Religion is the reason The world is breaking up into pieces Color of the people Keeps us locked in hate Please release us So come down and help us Save all the little ones They need a teacher And you are the only one We can rely on To build a better world A world that's for children A world that's for everyone Krishna ni begane Baro Krishna ni Allah 